chapter 28. We've come now to the last chapter of this book, but when you think about it, it isn't really the last chapter. It's the last written chapter of the book of Acts. We need to realize that the book of Acts continued on after chapter 28. It uh, carried on in the lives of all of the disciples, of the apostles, and so on and so forth until the Word of God itself came to us. And we here today are the beneficiaries of the work of so many to bring that wonderful good news of Jesus Christ to us today. We have learned tremendously uh, about the the birth of the church, about the growth of the church, about the struggles of the church through the lives of the apostles, especially Peter, Philip, and then of course Paul. We've spent much of the book of Acts looking at the person of Paul, the the apostle that God raised up to minister to the Gentiles. And yet, to see that here, here in the Scriptures, Paul always went to the synagogue first. He always went to the Jew first. And then to the Gentile. We've seen in Paul not only a humanness that encourages us to know that even in our humanity we face the same struggles and trials. But to see in Paul as well a man who was completely and totally dedicated to Christ, totally dedicated to the message of the Gospel, totally dedicated to the message of the cross, totally dedicated to the death of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus. And it is spilled over into our very lives. As we come now to chapter 28, and to this last chapter of this particular book in the Bible, after seeing Paul go through the storms of the seas, knowing full well that God had promised that he would be in Rome. He didn't take it lightly, but he realized the necessity of trusting God through every storm in life. And whether we want to believe it or not, we all go through storms. And every day we face those storms of life, but we need to remember that just like Paul, he trusted in the presence of the Lord through those storms. We face them, we will face them still. But we need to face them with that with that renewed and daily renewal of the knowledge and the presence of Christ. As we come to Acts 28, Paul and 275 others have been shipwrecked and yet 
were able to escape the ship and and find land in a place called Melita, or as we know it today, Malta. And this is where we begin in verse 1. Now when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta, and the natives showed us unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. In that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island, whose name was Publius, or Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had deceased us also came and were healed. They also honored us in many ways. And when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. Shall we pray? Father, this morning we thank you for the privilege of coming to your throne of grace, as well as the privilege of coming to your word, that we might hear it, that we might see it with our eyes, hear it with our ears, respond to it with our hearts and our minds, and certainly apply all of these things that are applicable to our lives. That we may know, Lord God, as the Apostle Paul knew, that you never left him nor forsook him, But you were always with him. And so are you with us as we trust in your very presence and in your power. We thank you, Lord, for giving us this opportunity to have gone through this whole whole book as, as quite an adventure for us, Lord. To see the power of the Holy Spirit through the church in its early days, in its early stages, and realize that that same power then is the power that we have available to us today. Lord, may we access, Lord, that power through prayer and through our desire, Lord God, to serve you in the name of Christ. And it is in that precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. You all have probably heard the saying, all roads lead to Rome. Now, it has a particular meaning when it is used as a saying. Different paths can take one uh, to the same goal. It also means uh, there can be many ways of doing something. So when that statement, all roads lead to Rome, is is stated, uh, it could be used along those lines. The phrase itself appeared for the first time in a 1391 work 
by the writer of the Canterbury Tales, Geoffrey Chaucer. And he wrote this paper to his son. It was a paper entitled A Treatise on the Astrolabe. Well, an astrolabe is really was an early uh, uh, device that was uh, uh, the uh, forerunner to the navigator's sextant, which was something that helped to line up the stars when they were navigating on the seas. It was called an astrolabe, and he's teaching his son about it. But within that whole paper, this is where this particular phrase came from. Right as diverse paths laden the folk the right way to Rome. <laughs> that was Old English, by the way. Probably didn't want to hear it that way. What it says is, all roads lead to Rome. Different paths take one to the same goal. But from a spiritually religious or a spiritual or religious perspective, it has been used loosely at times to mean that all roads lead to God, which of course is a cultic and apostate position held by many a New Age follower, which for the most part uh, they choose to neglect the authoritative statement of Jesus concerning himself. Where Jesus in John 14.6 said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And because the Apostle Paul was a devoted and dedicated servant of Christ and a passionate preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it fits well in all of the account of his life in the book of Acts that he is single-mindedly and single-handedly on that one single road that leads to Rome. The road that the Lord has placed him on whether through vehement opposition from his own Jewish brethren in Jerusalem, or through violent storm or threat of death by shipwreck or execution, Paul was on the single road, the only road, that would lead him exactly where God wanted him to be. It was that road that took him from Ephesus to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Caesarea, from Caesarea onto the ship that took him through all of the storms in the Mediterranean and even the Adriatic, and eventually took him to Malta, where we find him in our text today. The one road, you see. The one road that God has put him on. It's to remind us that there is one road for us. The road that we're on that leads us to where God wants us to be. Paul never wavered. And for Paul to never waver was a testament of God's sovereign hand of protection and the Apostle's responsibility to obey the Lord. We talked about sovereignty and responsibility last week. He knew God was sovereign, but there was a responsibility to obey God. And Paul was one who always did. It brings to mind, as we are here in the last chapter of the book of Acts, how Paul in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24, tells the Ephesian elders about his wanting to go to Jerusalem, how he's bound to go to Jerusalem. He says, and see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. And I want you to remember that phrase that Paul says to them, to finish his race with joy. 
And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, it was in Paul's heart to stay on that road that led him to Jerusalem that would eventually take him to Rome. For we know in Acts 23, verse 11, the Lord came and stood by him that night and said to him, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. There is that one road that God has placed him on. And you see, God promised to deliver Paul. And God kept His promise. And we need to remember that God always keeps His promises. He always keeps His promises. In Psalm 34, 19, the psalmist says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And certainly God delivered Paul through many a persecution, through many a trial, through many afflictions. And Paul knew that. And Paul talked about that very same thing when he said, about how God delivered him through all of his distresses. He writes in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10, he said to me, speaking of what Jesus said to, the, to, to Paul himself, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in, re in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And with these things in mind, we come to the final leg of Paul's journey and that final leg begins with refuge. It begins with coming out of all of this storm to a place that is called refuge. For that is what the word Melita in, in, in the Phoenician language and, and, and Malta means. It means refuge. So when they had escaped it, they, they then found out that the island was called Malta. Refuge. And the natives showed us unusual kindness. Now, please don't get the idea of natives as being natives as you would think, coming out with loincloths and spears and bones through their nose. Not the picture you need to get here. But it says that these natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. So now let's look back at where Paul had been from the island of Crete. They were blown by this storm that they were in some 600 miles west to this tiny island of Malta, which was some 60 miles south of Sicily. Now once on this island, these experienced sailors recognized this was the island of, of Malta. And I said before, Malta means refuge, and that is exactly what this place was for. Uh, uh, these men as they spent, uh, they had just spent some 14 days being tossed by, by this storm, not sure if they were going to live or, or die. In fact, many gave up hope of surviving until Paul encouraged them that God said that they would all live. And even then, where they were a little bit uh, unsure if that was going to happen. But as I said, as, as we come to the natives that are mentioned here in some of your Bibles, you you might find the words barbarous people or barbarians. And again, that could give you some kind of a misconception of what they were. 
but this is what is given in some translations for these island people. But that, but that truly gives the wrong impression because this isn't a derogatory name or is it, it's not speaking of a, a, so much of a primitive people. But it simply says that the Greeks call those people who didn't speak the Greek language as their native language, they would call them barbarians. And it came really from the fact that if they heard someone speaking that wasn't speaking Greek, to them it just sounded like bar, 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 bar. So they just said, well, they're a bunch of barbarians, you know. So that's where the word comes from. And so they weren't uh, speaking that uh, wonderful language of, of the Greeks. And, and so that's, all, that's why they're called barbarians. And you need to notice also the kindness that these natives showed to those that were shipwrecked here. It was still raining, it was cold, and they, and they made a fire to warm them and to dry them off. It had to be a pretty big fire. There was 276 men shipwrecked. So they built them a fire, not to have them for dinner, but to help them and to welcome them. Now, to some extent, the Lord was preparing the hearts of these pagans to receive the gospel, which reminds me of what C.S. Lewis liked to call pagans. He didn't call them pagans. He, he liked to call them pre-Christians. I think that's pretty cool. When you think of somebody who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, you would you would just say, well, they're heathen, they're pagan. You know, sometimes we apply those particular terms. But C.S. Lewis says, just call them pre-Christians. Why? Because you're going to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ, and they may just come to know Christ. That's a pretty good word to use. So as we read on now, we see that Paul worked along with everyone else in helping to provide the needs of these marooned men. Notice in verse 3, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, laid them on the fire. It tells us that he wasn't uh, one who wanted to sit back and let everybody do things. He got involved. He worked. He, he did what everybody else did. He was a servant. He learned that from the Lord. But when he did this, this is interesting, a viper came out because of the heat. And fastened onto his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. It shows, of course, their superstitions. No doubt this man is a murderer whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. Now they said that because they had seen these particular types of snakes bite people and those people would die almost immediately. So they expected Paul just to croak right there. But it says that he shook off the creature into the fire and, and suffered no harm. Again, remember, Paul is a servant, so the first thing we see is that Paul served because Jesus was his example. And as Paul served, we are to serve because Jesus is our example of servanthood. Matthew, uh, I should say Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. Didn't sit on a throne, didn't sit uh, with, with robes around with everybody serving Him. He, he touched people's lives. And I'm sure He touched people's lives when He was out there doing all of this work and then eventually getting bit. Now that's an interesting thing that happens to Paul, and I think it's something that we need to kind of pay attention to here. Because we have to ask the question, what happens when something bites us while we're serving the Lord? 
See, Paul's here doing what he's doing because everything he did was always to serve the Lord. So he's gathering sticks, trying to bring, you know, help to the, those who needed the warmth of the fire and all. And he gets bit by this viper and supposedly this viper would have killed him. So what happens when something bites us while we're serving the Lord? What is your reaction when something like this happens that seems so unfair? Doesn't it seem so unfair that here Paul is doing all this stuff? He's, he, you know, he's made it this far through some great storm, and then all of a sudden a, a, a poisonous snake bites him. It seems unfair. Lord, why are you allowing this to happen? Had Paul come this far only to die of venom poisoning and keep God's word unfulfilled? Or when something bites us while we're serving the Lord, do we, do we get angry with God? Or do we get angry with, with people? Do we stop serving at that very moment because we're angry at everybody? Should, these things shouldn't be happening to me. I tell you this, there are too many people in this church, and I don't say in this church, but I'm just talking about in the body of Christ. There's too, just too many people who are just so petty about things in life. You know, we, we, things get us down, things get us upset, things get us angry, then we get angry at God, we get angry at people, and then we say, I'm not serving anymore, or I'm not coming to church anymore, and I'm not going to do this, and I'm not going to do that. But here's Paul. Serving the Lord. Gets bit by a snake. What's his reaction? Of course, he could have just died. But did he say, God, why are you being unfair to me? Why did you allow this to happen? What did he do? Paul's reaction was not anger. Paul's reaction was not bitterness. Paul's reaction was this. He just shook the snake off. And he kept serving. He just shook the snake off. And he kept serving. Guys, don't be talking in here. Be listening. He shook the snake off. And he kept serving. In James chapter 4, James writes in verses 7 through 10, Therefore submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Paul was a person who humbled himself before God. He humbled himself before God. He did not let these things move him. Remember that he said that. None of these things move me. None of these things move me. He shook off the enemy. Resist the devil and he'll flee. Be careful that you don't try to shake off the Lord who's there to help you.
too often the response is, Why, Lord? The enemy's trying to keep you from serving. You've got to shake him off. So now the islanders saw what happened to Paul, and they felt that he was getting what he deserved from a God of vengeance. He had to be a horrible criminal, even though he had been saved from the vehement seas. Justice and judgment, they believed, would prevail. Look at verse 6. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. That was the nature of the viper that bit him, to cause this to happen to him. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said, Oh, he's a god. Well, that's pretty fickle, isn't it? At one moment they're saying, Oh, he's a deadly criminal and, you know, God's going to get him for it. And, Oh, he didn't die? Oh, he's a god. That's fickle. And it's amazing how fickle people can be. Listen, we'll cheer a baseball player who's batting 375 until he goes into a slump. And then what do we do? We're fickle, aren't we? Man can be fickle. But you know, it wasn't Paul's problem. Two things happen in this little exchange here with these natives. Paul never let the praise of men get to his head or go to his head. And he never let the condemnation of men keep him from what he was supposed to do. So understand then that that wasn't Paul's problem. But it definitely could be some of ours. We cannot let the praise of men go to our heads. And we certainly can't let the condemnation of men keep us from our service to God. The first thing they did was condemn him. They said he was going to die. When he didn't die, they praised him. He's a God. Didn't go to Paul's head. Luke does not cover this too much here. He just mentions it and goes on. But we just need to remember, we're not to let things go to our heads. Paul said in Colossians 3, 22-24, Bondservants, obey in all things your masters, according to the flesh, not with eye service, as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. And Paul knew that he served the Lord Jesus, so he wasn't, you know, they said what they said, and not much is mentioned after that. So this is the section dealing with refuge. They've come, they've received refuge there in Malta, they've received help, and they also receive relief. And relief is the next point here. Relief comes, but it's not only coming to these men, especially to Paul, but it's something that Paul gives. Notice verses 7 through 10. In that region there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Now, this tells us that Luke, being a physician, was not only saying, well, he was sick, but he makes very clear to give us a little bit of detail. Being a physician, he knew what the problem was with this man. Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came 
and were healed. And it's interesting that that second word healing or healed there in verse 9, at the end of verse 9, has to do with a healing that is a continual or a slow kind of healing. So uh, that, that kind of suggests that not only did Paul pray and healing started to come, but that healing was also brought by the comfort that was given by the physician Paul, or I should say the physician Luke, who was with Paul at the time. So healing comes in both ways. It can come instantly through prayer. It can come through prayer and through medical uh, help. In this particular case, uh, that word healed there at the end of verse 9 suggests that. But because of all of this, it says, they also honored us in many ways, and when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. And the word honored us there, or the phrase honored us there, uh, brings to mind the word honorarium. As they were doing these things, the people were grateful and they offered an honorarium in, in some way, some material way or, or some physical way. And, and of course, verse 10 again uh, suggests that it was something that would provide them with help along their journey. But uh, just to get a hold of what's going on here, doors of opportunity open for Paul to minister. And that probably because of the way Paul served amongst the people when he was picking up sticks and helping things out. But, it, it, but he, he, he was able to go through this door of opportunity, not only to the chief man in Malta, this Publius, but to many others as well by manifesting the signs of an apostle. And Jesus talks about that in Mark chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, where it says, These signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents. Well, that's something Paul did. Didn't do it because he wanted to. He wasn't from Arkansas picking up them snakes, you know, and doing whatever they do in those churches out there. No, he, he was just picking up sticks and the snake bit him. So nonetheless, he took up a serpent and then he cast it out. But he was fine because God took care of him. God protected him. It says if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So all of these things are, uh, that Jesus said are being manifested in the life of Paul among these people. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, Paul himself would say, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Now, it brings a question to mind. Why were, the, why were they shipwrecked on the island of Malta when God told Paul he was going to go to Rome? Why were they shipwrecked on Malta? Remember, they're on that single road that's leading to Rome. Paul's on it. Paul's going there. God's getting him there. Why did they stop in Malta? Simply because God wanted Paul to go to this tiny island and to share the love of Christ with these people, to proclaim to them the good news, and to bring them the power of God through those signs and wonders that come through the Apostle. So this storm was not outside the will of God, you see. The storm that took him to Malta was part of God's plan. And it wasn't outside of God's control. God knew exactly what was going to happen when Paul ends up in Malta. God used it to bring about the salvation of these people in Malta. In fact, tradition tells us that Publius was the first pastor of the church in Malta, whose beginning can be traced back to this time when Paul was shipwrecked there. So understand then that God's plans are, are beyond our understanding sometimes until we get on the proper side of His will. 
Let me say that again because I think that's an idea and a thought that we need to kind of meditate upon. God's plans are beyond our understanding sometimes until we get on the proper side of His will. You see why Paul says in Romans 11 verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. We can do all we can to try to search out His judgments. In some cases, we can't understand it. We can't find His ways out sometimes. That's okay. God's in control. And Paul understood this. And you'll notice that not only did relief come to Paul when he was on Malta, but he gave relief. He used the the gifts that God had given him as an apostle to heal and to help the people that were there. And so from refuge to relief, we come to respite. A time of rest. You'll notice in verse 11, it says, After three months we sailed in an Alexandrian ship, whose figurehead was the twin twin brothers which had wintered at the island. And landing at Syracuse, by the way, that's not Syracuse, New York, it's Syracuse in that region, uh, Sicily. We stayed there uh, three days. From there we circled round and reached Regium, and after one day the south wind blew, and the next day we came to Puteoli. And there's still a, a place called Pozzioli, in Italy there, same city, where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appi Forum and three inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage, which means that he was greatly encouraged. Now when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with a soldier who guarded him. So, as the winter months passed, and it was now more favorable to sail, they boarded an Alexandrian grain ship that was ported there for the winter. Now, why did Luke report that its figurehead was the twin brothers? Well, primarily because he wanted us to know that this was an historical event. It was a real event. And he specified, for the sake of authenticity, exactly what ship they traveled on. Luke wanted everyone to know this is, was not a fairy tale. This was not just a made-up story. This really happened. So he makes all of these details known for that purpose. This is a true historical account. Now, in Greek mythology, getting to the understanding of who the twin brothers were, in Greek mythology, the twin brothers were a pair called Castor and Pollux. They were the sons of Zeus. And and they were seen as the gods who protected sailors. Now maybe after their last sailing disaster, the centurion and the other sailors wanted to have some added protection as they traveled to Rome. And they said, well, there's the ship of the twin brothers. Aren't they the ones who protect us in the seas? Let's go on that ship. So they brought all the uh, men that were with them onto that particular ship and, and sailed on. But it brings to mind this thought. That while man today looks for many ways to find protection in, in themselves or in others, let's remember that Jesus, for us, is all we need. Jesus is all we need. It's Jesus who will s- safely see us through the storms of life. It was Jesus who safely saw Paul through all of those storms in the Mediterranean. 
It was Jesus who saved him and brought him and even told him, y'all are going to be saved. Just stay on the boat. And Jesus took him there to Malta. And the fact of the matter is, it is Jesus who will carry us safely home when our days on this earth have been completely fulfilled in accordance to God's will. It will be Jesus who takes us home. And there's nothing for us to fear. You see, in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Think about that. Jesus says, I've got them in my hand. Nobody's going to snatch them out. I, I wouldn't try. But then notice what Jesus goes on to say. My Father who who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. There's double protection there. There's the hand of Jesus and the hand of the Father. And that's us inside the hand. Are you going to try to snatch them out of His hand? No. Be foolish to try. That's how wonderful the salvation of God is. The salvation of Christ. And He says, I and my Father are one. So we take care of you. You're going to be safely home when your day is done on this earth. Well, their first stop, as the text tells us, was Syracuse, which was the capital city on the island of Sicily, which was located on the Lower East Side of the island. After three days, they sailed to Regium, which was on the southern tip of the Italian peninsula, or as we call it, the toe of Italy. Now you know that Italy is formed in the shape of a boot. Well, just consider where the toe of that boot is, and that's where Regium is. And as they waited, the winds became more favorable, and once again they sailed on to Putioli, an, an important commercial port in Italy, and still some 150 miles away from Rome. But this city of Puteoli had some 100,000 people during Paul's day. So it wasn't a small city at all. And it was there in this city that Paul was allowed to stay with with Christian brethren for a week. Consider the liberties that Paul was given. uh, The favor that Paul was shown. To to stay with Christian brothers there for a week, which was which was a wonderful way to get the necessary, or I should say the the necessary rest and the encouragement that Paul and his companions needed for the continuation of their trip to Rome. They they may have arrived in this port city with a, with a great amount of apprehension, and I would have to believe that. I think that in in any situation where we find ourselves where we don't know what's really around the next corner, what's, what's around the next band, as it were. We, we always face that turn with a little bit of apprehension. We wonder, Lord, what's next? And Paul was no different than we are, having those kinds of apprehensions. Can you, can, can you just picture him on this ship as they're arriving in this port, and this being a very large city, and being a city... In imperial Rome, they began to see the grandeur and the splendor of imperial Rome before them. And at the very same time, Paul saying, what's lying, what, what lay ahead for me here? He wasn't arriving as the flaming evangelist of God, but as a prisoner in chains. What do I have to look forward to now that I'm here in Rome? 
Would the believers in Rome receive him? He wasn't really sure. He hadn't sent ahead. He was just coming in faith, knowing that this is where God wanted him. But in such an apprehensive moment, being gripped with thoughts of being all alone, God truly does enter the scene. God has never left the scene, but He truly enters the scene for us here because God met the need of His dear messenger. Christian believers were found in the seaport and God granted them seven days to be with them. And much more, God sent two welcoming parties from the church in Rome, one that traveled over 40 miles and the other over 30 miles, both of them to escort Paul into the great city of Rome. And the picture that is given here by Luke in the Greek language is that of of welcoming parties coming to give God's precious servant a welcome uh, that was fit for a conqueror. A welcome that was fit for a king. They knew who Paul was. And they realized that, that he was that great apostle of the Lord who had preached the gospel to the Gentiles. And they received him with great joy. Paul, in writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, in his last letter, 2 Timothy 4, he says in verses 6-8, through For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have fought the good fight. Think about that. He knew what the Christian life had become. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've I've kept the faith. He was faithful. He never strayed from the calling that God had given him. So he says, finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And I think that this was a sentiment that was on Paul's heart as he sees all of these Christian brethren come to welcome him to Rome, to take him to the city of Rome. But he, but he had on his heart there's only this, this one thing, he says. To love the appearing of Christ. You'll notice it's in past tense. To all who have loved His appearing. Because you see, when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, that's when he began to love God. The day that the Lord Jesus met us on the road that we were on, that's when we began to love God. We loved His appearing. Why? Because His appearing changed our lives. We were no longer the same way we were. We were now a new creature in Christ. The old was passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And my question to you all today is, do you love His appearing? Did you love His appearing when He came to you? Do you love Him still? 
Will you love Him when He appears again, when He comes for His church? You see, the words of Paul, in, 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 not only in the book of Acts, but in the writings of Paul, are, are, are so focused seriously upon that relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ. That to do anything less is just playing games with God. But to love His appearing. Did you love His appearing when He came to you, when He changed your life? Then do you love Him still? Paul says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. I want those words to be your words when the Lord comes for you. We never know when that is. I would hope that we'd all go together with the Lord in the rapture, but guess what? We don't know. But can we say, I have fought the good fight? I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. That's my desire for you and each and every one of us here. That you can say that when the Lord comes again. Refuge, relief, respite. But upon coming to Rome, Paul is now dealing with re-examination. Verse 17, And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered.